bow your heads with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful that we can look into it. We're grateful that we can understand your will. We're grateful that we can be encouraged by your word. We can understand your hope that you have for us, even through difficult and hard times. Through your word, we can be encouraged and we can encourage one another through your word. And Lord, it's through your word that we find out that we're saved by grace through faith. And it's through your word that we can find out how to please you and live in an honoring way. And it's through your word that we find out that our hope, our hope is the assurance of things unseen. Our faith is the insurance, assurance of things unseen. It's the, it's the hope, Lord, in a future. Help us, Lord, as we look intently in your word today. Help us to be encouraged Help us to be strengthened by your word. Lord, help us at times, maybe we need to be convicted by your word this morning. Or maybe we need our, our cages rattled a little bit by your word. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would do all of that because Lord, your word is living and active and it's sharper than a double-edged sword. So help us, Lord, as we dig into it this morning. In your name we pray, amen. I wanna get into a text this morning and don't open there yet. Um, I know it's in your notes, but I don't want you there just yet. It's a text I've entitled, uh, I've entitled this message um, something along the lines of when feelings and faith collide. I can't remember if on your notes that's backwards or not, but when feelings, what's that? It's when faith and feelings collide, there we go. Um, and we're gonna go to the Psalms ultimately for the text. I love the Psalms, the Psalms, have a way of, of marrying or going hand in hand our feelings with our doctrine. And sometimes we can swing on a spectrum one way or the other and we can be so doctrine oriented, we lack feeling. Uh, I've known people like that. Something tragic would happen in their family and they just go, well, God is sovereign, that's what he wanted. No feeling. And, and it's true, God is sovereign, uh, but at the same time, at the same time we're, we're feeling people. And you can flip easily to the other end of that spectrum and be so feelings oriented that your doctrine is terrible and, and things happen and, and it's woe is me and, and God must hate me and, and all of these different things because you have no theology to guide you. And so I, I say this a lot with our youth and with my family that your feelings, sorry, your theology, not your feelings, your theology must dictate to your mind and your heart how to think and feel. That which you know about God, your doctrine must dictate to your heart and mind how to think and feel. We are fickle people. We can go from being super happy, the world is good, God is good, life is good when blessings are there, and then, then when, when difficulty strikes, our hearts can just, whoosh, just turn in a moment's notice. We're fickle people. We need our doctrine to dictate to our heart and our mind how to think and feel. Otherwise, we're all over the place. Winds of, of difficulty, persecution, trial, whatever it is, strike at us and, and at times threaten to blow us down unless we are grounded and founded on the word of God. Our text today intrigues me. I read it three weeks ago, actually, when we were having uh, just our morning scripture service here in church, and I was, I was the MC, and we read this psalm, and, and it just intrigued me. It, it stood out to me. It, it popped, and I wanted to study it, and the more I studied it, I said, I want to preach it, uh, because I think we need it, because there are times when the difficulties of life, the trials, the, the suffering that we're going through, whether it's persecution or just difficulty, uh, threaten threaten our faith because it's not grounded. And, and the author of the Psalm that we're gonna look at today is grounded and suffering, but he's grounded. So before you get there, um, by means of introduction, it was 1873. He lost it all. He lost almost everything that he held near and dear to him except his wife alone. This man in 1873 uh, could be a seemingly modern day Job. We know the story of Job. Job had, had wealth, had family, had faith. Everything was going well for Job. But God had a conversation in the heavenlies about Job with Satan. And then we know the story of Job. Things get taken from him. Not because he did evil or wrong, but because God was proving a point in Job's life. This man, 
has lost almost everything, but like Job, he was a firm believer in the Lord. He was financially prosperous. He lived in Chicago and he had heavily invested in real estate in Chicago. He was a partner in a law firm and and doing really well. He had a beautiful family and he wrote songs for the evangelistic campaigns of his day. He was well known for his love for the Lord and for his family. Things were going well. Whatever he touched turned to gold, it seemed. The Lord was blessing him amazingly and immensely. And then on one fateful day in October of 1871, two years before I started, things began to change for him. A great fire in Chicago uh, started, or the great fire of Chicago burned down all of his investments and destroying much of his income. And he didn't lose heart. Over 90,000 people were displaced from their homes in Chicago due to the fire, yet his home was spared. And he decided to use his home and whatever finances he had left to feed those who needed help. And, and he cared for the injured in his home. And so while the tragedy indeed was immense for him, he used that tragedy and he turned it to honor and glorify God. Two years later, he decided to head to Europe on vacation to follow a friend, D.L. Moody, you may have heard of him, who was going to Europe to preach and evangelize. And so he had bought tickets to go across the Atlantic Ocean on a boat, but due to business um, issues, he couldn't go. So he sent his wife first, his wife and his children ahead, his four girls across the Atlantic Ocean ahead of him. Not long after their departure, in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, the boat sank. His wife sent a telegraph from Wales when she arrived, and there's a bit of debate as to the length of the telegraph or what exactly it read, but most sources say it read, saved alone. Saved alone. His four daughters were lost in the tragedy. He had wealth and then lost that. He had a family and then lost that. Has anything like that ever happened to you? To most of us, not quite like that. But tragedy does strike, difficulty does happen. We, we get in car wrecks, we lose loved ones, we have sicknesses and health issues that we have to deal with. And as I, as I look out across you, I know, I know some of the issues, the difficulties that some of you are dealing with. I know it's not quite like that or quite like Job, but it is difficult and, and, and we feel the pain of that and yet we have our faith at the same time and sometimes those two seem to want to collide because I'll be honest, we've bought into a little bit of prosperity theology, the prosperity theology and, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Have you ever been like Job or our friend from the story and one minute you've got everything and it's sunshine and roses and it's good and then all of a sudden the bottom drops out and you hear information or news or something and it causes you to stumble, it causes you to feel disoriented. Everything seems to be spinning out of control and our author today teaches us how to keep our feelings in check by our faith in a faithful God. Let me read our text to you before you open it so you can see why I was a little bit shocked by this text as I was reading it three weeks ago. It feels in some ways like it's two separate psalms sewn together in an awkward way. The transition isn't great. The segue from one psalm for half the psalm into the second half seems awkward and it seems difficult and you don't really expect it from the first half. Let me read the first half for you. Oh God, we have heard with our ears Our fathers have recounted to us the work that you did in in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, dispossessed the nations. Then you planted them. You afflicted the peoples, and then you cast them out. For by their own sword, they did not possess the land, and their own arm did not save them. But your right hand and your arm, in the light of your presence, you favored them. You are my king, O God. Command salvation for Jacob. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through through your name, we will tread down those who rise up against us. For I will not trust in my bow, and my sword will not save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. What a psalm of praise. 
What a psalm of, of high praise due to what God has done. It's, the psalmist is looking back saying, we've heard, we've seen, we know. It's been recounted to us how, how amazing you are. That's a song of high praise. Listen to the transition now. Yet you have rejected us. You have brought us to dishonor. And do not go out with our armies. You caused us to turn back from our adversaries. And those who hate us have plundered us for themselves. You have given us as sheep to be eaten and have scattered us among the nations. You sell your people for no amount and you have not profited from their price. You make us a reproach to our neighbors, a mockery and a derision to those around us. You make us a byword among the nations, a laughing stock among the peoples. All day long my dishonor is before me and my shame, or in the shame of my face has covered me because of the voice of him who reproaches and reviles because of the presence of the enemy and the avenger. And all this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, and nor have our steps deviated from your path. Yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals and have covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands out to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake and do not reject us. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our opposition? For our soul has sunk down into the dust and our body cleaves to the earth. What a difference, right? I didn't read the last verse and I'll get to that in a second, but what a difference. Do you feel the difference between this high praise and then all of a sudden, yet this is how we are? Sometimes we feel that way too. We too have heard, we too have read, we too know the mighty works of God and yet sometimes in our difficulties we feel like there is a silence from God. The last verse, rise up. Rise up, be our help, and redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. Psalm 44, go ahead and open there if you're not there. Uh, Psalm 44 is our text. We don't know a whole lot about the background of Psalm 44. It's clear that there's a national tragedy. It's clear probably that there's a defeat, a military defeat of some sort. Some think, some theologians think that this is when, uh, this is when Israel went into exile. I, I don't think that's a really good fit. Uh, for exile because the psalmist says that, that we haven't forgotten you, we haven't dealt falsely with your covenant, our hearts have not turned back and our steps have not deviated from your path. Well, the whole reason why they went into exile was because they had deviated from the path. They had raised their hands to foreign gods. They had failed God in the covenant. So I don't really think this is an exile moment. Some think that it may be uh, Moses on Mount Horeb, um, or on Mount Sinai, I don't think it really fits that context either at this point. Uh, I think it's best probably fit sometime in the, the reign of King David or shortly thereafter, sometime in the middle. Uh, it, it sounds a whole lot like the beginning of Psalm 60, which is a psalm written by David. It's a psalm that was after a battle when everything had been going well and David and the army were over 400 kilometers to the north and winning every single battle. And then all of a sudden, the Edomites attacked from the south in Psalm 60, and all of a sudden, people are shocked. Listen to how David starts Psalm 60. Oh God, you have rejected us. You have broken us. You have been angry. Oh, restore us, he says. You have made the land quake. I don't think that's a physical earthquake. I think he's feeling disoriented. Tragedy struck, and it feels like the land is quaking. You have split it open. Heal its breaches for it shakes. You have caused your people to see hardship. You have given us wine to drink that cause reeling. Again, it's talking about this sense of disorientation. You have given us a banner to those who fear you in order to flee to it from the bow that your beloved may be rescued. Save with your right hand and answer us. That was, that was a military defeat. We do know that from the context of Psalm 60. Psalm 44 doesn't give us a complete context. And actually, I'm kind of happy about that. 
because we don't go through battles like they do. And, and yet this psalm, as all of scripture, applies to every believer in all places at all times. And so I'm happy in some ways that there isn't a specific context because the context is suffering and difficulty. And the context is faith on the one hand and feelings on the other and them coming together and, and that comes together in your heart. And it's a struggle at times to deal with the difficulty in light of faith. And the temptation is to jettison the faith because we feel what we know. I, I know this to be true because I feel it. And yet the flip side, we need to hold on to our faith. So, so let's look at this. We're gonna have three main headings in Psalm 44. The worshiper recalls God's past good. That's gonna be our first heading. The worshiper looks back, essentially. The worshiper remembers and he recalls God's past good. That's number one. Number two will be the worshiper recites God's perceived lack of present good. I know that's a long one. I'll repeat it if you're taking notes. The worshiper recites God's perceived lack of present good. And then our third point will be the worshiper requests God's future help. The worshiper requests God's future help. So let's look at the first one. The worshiper recalls God's past good. And the psalmist, obviously, clearly in this moment of despair and difficulty, he first turns to look back. And he looks back at, and, and he looks back at what God has done in the past. And I, I think keeping in mind where he's going makes this first section that much more powerful, meaningful. His heart is broken in the moment. And yet he's writing back. He's writing about the good things that God has done. He's recalling all of God's goodness. I think that's gotta be hard in some ways because he feels in the moment like God isn't being good with him. Look how the past deeds are understood and recalled. He says, oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have recounted to us. By the way, in the Psalms, just just to help you remember, the Psalms are poems, they're, they're songs that were meant to be sung by God's people, um, and, and they're poetry, but not like our poetry. We're roses are red, violets are blue kind of people. Um, you write a song, I'll write one too, right? We've got rhythm, we've got rhyme and meter, and I know I'm painting with a broad brush. There's, I know there's English majors out there, and you're just gonna rip me apart for saying that, but, but my point is here, the Psalms were based on parallels. It's called parallelism. It's this idea that the author would write one phrase and he's gonna parallel or in the next phrase, and you see that here, right? Verse one, oh God, we have heard with our ears, and he's gonna build on that now. Our fathers have recounted to us. That's how they heard, so he, he builds a little bit. Sometimes there's gonna be a phrase and the opposite will come in the parallel. So it's an opposite parallel. Sometimes it's building on the parallel, but it's all... All their poems are built on this idea of parallels, and here we see it. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Oh, fa our fathers have recounted to us the work that you did in their days, in the days of old. I feel like potentially you can almost kind of feel a little bit of that hurt right here. Our fathers recounted to us, that's great. The, the things that you did, that's great. In the days, what does he say, of old. It's the past glories. It's the past things that God did. And, and that kind of, Psalm 145, let me just read that. You don't need to turn there. Um, I like how the psalmist says what we need to be doing. Reminds me of Deuteronomy 6 as well. You should tell your children everywhere you walk, everywhere you are, you should, you should one generation to the next should be teaching about God. Psalm 145 Verse three says, great is Yahweh and highly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall laud your works to another and shall declare your mighty deeds. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on the words of your wondrous deeds, I will muse. Men shall speak of the strength of your fearsome acts and I will recount your greatness. That was being done and the, the psalmist says, I've heard about it. We know about it. We've, we've seen what you've done in the past. We've seen how your righty, might, right, mighty right arm has saved God's children. Think of, think of coming out of the Exodus, right? Or coming out of Egypt, how God saved his people. All of these mighty acts. Look at the things that you did in the days of old. 
You with your right hand, your own hand, excuse me, you with your own hand, verse two, dispossessed the nations and you planted them, meaning the fathers. You dispossessed the nations and you planted them. You afflicted the peoples and those peoples you cast out. This reminds me of texts from Joshua 24 where, where Joshua's reminding Israel, remember God went before you like a hornet and he saved you. He cast out those nations before you. It wasn't with your mighty right hand, Joshua says, that you went into the land, but it was God who opened up the land for you. And think about it. Joshua was a warrior. Caleb, I think even more so. I think Caleb was a fearsome warrior. I would be afraid to face Caleb, an 80-year-old man who had fire in him to fight. They fought, didn't they? We, we know the stories, yet the theology of it is, God, you gave the land to us. You brought us into the land. Yes, they wielded swords and bows, and yes, they went in and they fought, but it was God who gave the battle. I think that the clearest picture is Jericho. Remember that? As they, they've come out of Egypt, they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and now they're about to cross the mighty Jordan in its flood stage to get to Jericho. And God says, take the Ark of the Covenant and walk into the water. And I think this is fantastic because what was one of the greatest acts that God did for Israel leaving Egypt with Moses? It was Moses standing before the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, spreading his staff out. And there's no bippity-boppity-boo in that staff. There wasn't anything magic or special about the staff. It was the act of faith that God said, raise your staff. The most ridiculous thing that Moses could have done. He could have said, arm up, let's fight, let's go, get your swords, Egypt's coming. Instead, God said, I want you to stand at the edge of the sea and I just want you to raise your stick, Moses. That's all I want you to do. That's it. I imagine the Israelites were like, like Mo, what are you doing? They're gonna come kill us and you're just standing there with your little stick. And God opened the sea and they walked through on dry land. Now Joshua is taking over. He's got the mantle of leadership from Moses. Moses is dead and they're gonna go into the promised land and God says, Joshua, take the wooden box, but that box that represents me and I want you to walk into the water. And what did God do that was like Moses? He stopped the water. I, my mind, I just, I'd love to have seen that. What would that look like? And here Moses, uh, Joshua, and all of his people walk through on dry land. Just like God brought Moses and Israel out of Egypt, God is bringing Israel into the promised land and he's doing it in a miraculous way. They didn't, they didn't build a dam to stop, it at, to stop up the water. It wasn't their own mighty right hand that did those acts. And then once they got through the water, what town was in front of them? Just Jericho the most strongly fortified town in the entire area of Canaan. No one had ever defeated Jericho. Its walls were massively thick, so thick that apartments could be built inside of them. And what does God tell him to do? What's the battle strategy for Jericho? Walk around it. Just walk quietly. Now, I'm a youth pastor with like 35, 40 kids. Quietly is hard to do with 40. Can you imagine over over a million Israelites walk it in silence. And they did. That's the battle plan. Day two, walk it in silence. Day three, walk it in silence. On the seventh day, walk around seven times. Then pull out those, those ram's horn horns and let it rip and scream and yell and watch what I'm gonna do. That's the battle plan. And the walls come down. Now, they ended, fighting ensued but who won the victory? It was God and God alone. Here our psalmist says, we've heard all of these things when you with your own hand dispossessed the nations and then you planted our fathers there. You afflicted the people and you cast them out. Verse three, for by their own sword, they did not possess the land. They did fight though. They did battle, yet the theology is right. You you won the victory. Their own army, their own arm, excuse me, did not save them, but your right hand and your arm in the light of your presence because you favored them, because you caused your face to shine upon them. That's how they got into the land. Remember, our psalmist is going through defeat at the moment. 
and yet he's remembering the greatness of God. Then there's a shift, and I want you to notice in verse four, there's a little shift, and you're also gonna see it uh, in verse six, and then you'll see it down in verse, I'm missing it right here. We'll come to it later. Verse four, notice the preposition changes. Beforehand, it's God we have heard. It's been recounted to us. There's this first person plural. And then now you get to a first person singular. You are my king, O God. Command salvation for Jacob. What it seems like is this is a call and response kind of thing. Maybe God's people, the Israelites, would recount in the temple verses one, two, and three, and then there'd be a response by the king by one person for you are my king, O God, command salvation for Jacob. This is the king speaking to the king about what's going on. For you're my king, O God. He's recognizing that the battle belongs to the Lord and he implores the Lord to command salvation. I don't think this was the king of Israel looking up to God, commanding the Lord of hosts to bring salvation, command salvation for Jacob. I don't think that's the attitude here knowing especially the rest of the psalm. I think he's imploring God. He's praying out. He's calling to God. Oh God, only you can command salvation. So you are my king, oh God. Command salvation for Jacob. Then we go back to the congregation speaking. Through you, we will push back our adversaries. Through your name, we will tread down those who rise up against us. So not only is there kind of this backwards look to what God has done in history, but now they're saying because of all of that, we have faith and confidence that through you, these things will happen. Back to first person, verse six, for I will not trust in my bow. Here's the king speaking. My sword will not save me. I've learned from history. I know from history that ultimately, God, it's from you, for you, by you, and through you. So while you've placed me here as a king, I will not trust in myself. I will not trust in my bow, and I know that my sword will not save me. But you have saved us from our adversaries, and you have put to shame those who hate us. In God, we have boasted all day long, and we will give thanks to your name forever. I love this section. It could end there, and we'd get really excited about it, and we'd be like, yeah, the divine warrior fought for his people. And this is great. This is just the beginning, though. But I want you to notice the heart of the sufferer, who is a worshiper, looks back and says, I know, God, what you've done. When you're suffering and you're in a difficult moment, be it with your health or whatever it is, the first step is looking back and saying, God, you have always been faithful. You have always been good. You have always been mighty. And you have always been strong. And and I love that last part there. He says, in God we have boasted all day long. Notice how the, the, the next phrase builds on it. And we will give thanks to your name forever not just all day long, but all the days long, forever and ever. This first section is high praise to what God's done. But that opens up to the hard section now. The worshiper, so this is our second point, the worshiper recites God's perceived lack of present good. And I'm gonna have this broken down kind of in two little subcategories. So the worshiper recites God's perceived lack of good of present good, and in the first part is gonna be what God has done is clear. So the first little subsection is what God has done is, is very clear. It's clear to what's going on. Some unknown national disaster, probably a defeat like I've already said, um, some kind of military loss, and, and I think it's helpful for us to remember we've never had major military losses within the United States in a very long time. Right, All of our losses, we have men and women in the military that go fight battles, but they're usually out there. They're usually somewhere else. And we don't have to worry that some invading army is gonna come to Santa Clarita, California and and destroy half of Santa Clarita Valley and, and loot the city and take away the women and children and kill the men. That's not something that we deal with on a regular basis. So when Israel goes through a defeat, that's what we're talking about though. We're not talking about something that happens far off and in the Middle East and we hear about it and we hear about the people that died and maybe we know someone that had a relative who died out there. 
but we're talking about a defeat here, something that we haven't had to go through. Thank the Lord for that. But that's what they're going through. And they're going through a difficulty that we haven't had to deal with, plundering of cities and the kidnapping of, of people and taking them away. Whatever the defeat was in history, it's easy to understand how the worshiper felt. It was painful, it hurt. And yet he still acknowledges God's sovereignty over the situation. Our worshiper still has his proper doctrine dictating to his heart how to think and feel. But notice, he's gonna recount his difficulties but I want you to notice the difference between the way that he's talking about them and sometimes the way we talk about them. We can tend to do it in more of a, an angry mode with the, oh God, why me kind of mode. I want you to just hear the difference as we go through. And the difference really is, is clear. In the beginning, it seemed like a divine warrior was bringing them into the land for by your own sword, in verse three, did they possess the land by your own, uh, sorry, by their own sword, they did not possess the land and with their own arm, they did not, it did not save them. And yet in verse nine, we begin with, yet you have rejected us and you've brought us to dishonor. Listen to the verbs just throughout this whole section, rejected brought us to dishonor. You don't go out with us. You've caused us to turn back from our enemies. You, um, those who hate us have plundered us. We've been given like sheep to be eaten. You've scattered us. We're sold. You sell us, right? You sell your people. Uh, we are a reproach. We are a derision, a mockery, a byword, a laughing stock. It's a complete turnaround from verses one to, one to seven, one to eight, a complete turnaround. And you can even see, you can see contrasts that the author is writing. Look at verse nine. You have rejected us and brought us dishonor. You don't go out with our armies anymore. Look how that is different from verse seven. You saved us from our adversaries and put to shame those who shame us. Look at verse 10. You caused us to turn back from our adversary. So we've retreated. Uh, and those who hate us, uh, hate us have plundered us for themselves. Look how different that is from verse, um, verse five. Through you, we will push back our adversaries, but instead we're being pushed back. Through your name, we will tread down those who rise up against us. And, and yet here it says that they have risen up against us and plundered us. Look down at verse 11. You give us a sheep to be eaten and you've scattered us among the nations. Look at verse two. In the days of old, you afflicted the peoples and you cast them out and planted Israel. It's complete opposites. The things that you did, you're not doing. In fact, not only are you not doing them, it feels like you're doing the opposite here. It hurts what you're doing is what he's saying. Are you feeling that? It's completely opposite. He brings that out to, for everyone's attention. The worshiper, for the worshiper, it seems like a complete turnaround. And knowing the current situation makes the first section, like I already said, all the more powerful as he recounted God's goodness in the past. But the reality is our worshiper knows his theology. And he knows what God did and what God continues to do ultimately is good, even though at times we can't understand it. How do we handle difficult situations? How do we handle it when our feelings about a situation collide with our faith about a situation? And again, that's where we must have our doctrine dictating to our heart how to think and feel. It must be that way because we kind of come to it and we would say something like, where are you, God? But we too with the worshiper could say, I've heard, I've read, I've seen, I've known what you've done in the past. Why are you silent now? And if you, if you step across that imaginary line and you go into, why me? What did I do to deserve this? That's when we start buying into a prosperity gospel, right? Prosperity theology that says, if you do good, God blesses you. And if you do bad, God's gonna punish you. And sometimes we, sometimes we buy into that. Uh, Job's friends bought into that, right? Job's friends kept telling him, you've sinned or you, you have sinned or you're sinning now or someone in your life is sinning because God doesn't do what, what's happening to you unless you're wrong, unless there's some evil in your life. And so you've got to just, you've got to take stock of your life. I had someone tell me that once. I was struggling with sleeping and they, the person said, you must be, you must be sinning. It's got to be. You need to, you need to take stock of your life. 
You need to examine yourself because God wouldn't have you not be able to sleep well unless there was something, some sin that you're holding on to. And I just, I, I couldn't think of anything. Not that, we, not that any of us are perfect, but, but we know from Job and we know from the way that God dealt with Job that it wasn't a sin of Job's at all. And the ultimate story behind Job says this, God ultimately says to Job, Job, if I can take care of the animal that's on that mountain that you don't even know exists, if I can, if I can keep this globe spinning that you didn't create because you weren't there when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job. You, you weren't there and you're not there when I tell the, the lightning bolts where to strike and I've, I've commanded the dawn, Job. I've done all of that and I keep it going. Can you not trust me to keep your life even through the difficulties? That's the teaching that Job gives us. That's what's going on in the worshiper's heart right now. God, I know that you've done great good. I'm struggling right now. It hurts. Are we feeling people? Do we feel pain and suffering? We do. But notice how our worshiper stays grounded the whole time. Our worshiper doesn't get hit by this wave or this wind of change or difficulty or persecution or trial and then throw his hands up and say, what did I do, God, to deserve this? Sometimes that's how we ha handle it. Why me? Why me? Instead, Notice his why me isn't really there. It's, Lord, I recognize you're in charge. I have proper theology. I know that this comes from your hand. I don't know why. It hurts. But it's from you. Notice the lack of accusation in the author's tone of voice. It's recounting. This is what we feel like. We feel rejected. We feel abandoned. We feel like you've sold us to our adversaries. We feel reproached to our neighbors. And, and I like how he says in verse 12, you sell your people for no amount and you've not profited from their price. It's not like you're selling us. It's not like you're, you're giving us away like a, like a slave master and you're gaining money for it. The, it's not for your glory. It's not for your good that we're sold. It's not, it's not, I don't get it, he says. I don't understand. But much like, much like us, the psalmist starts going through the why. You know, we're like that, aren't we? Sometimes we wanna know the why that God is doing what he's doing so that we can in some way, shape, or form agree with what God's doing. We can, we can kind of rest our heart. Like, why did God cause me to get in that car wreck? Well, someone might say, maybe it's so that you can testify to the other driver. And we go, oh, that, might, that's, that would be good. Almost like we need to know the why so that we can trust God. It's not Job, is it, though? God never answers Job. God never tells him why. So the author tries to do that though. Look at our second subsection. Why God has done it is unclear. That first subsection, the first one was um, what he's done is clear. The second one is why God has done it is unclear. The worshiper declares that the reason cannot be unfaithfulness. It cannot be. Look at verse 17. All this has come upon us, but we haven't forgotten you. And we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our hearts have not turned back, nor have our steps deviated from your path. Yet you have crushed us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. Even if, he says, if we had forgotten the name of our God or spread our hands out in worship, right, to a strange God, would not God find this out? He's throwing it back on God. God, you know our hearts. You know that we haven't done any of those things. You are the proof that, that we haven't. Yet it still happened. You've crushed us. Verse 21, would, God not, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are killed all day long. He's struggling. He's having a hard time. It's difficult. We're killed all day long and we're counted as sheep for the slaughter. He's giving his argument that, that they hadn't done, as far as he knew, anything that would, that would be against God. As of yet, we still don't have a finger being pointed at God. We still don't have a fist raised to heaven saying, I can't believe you're doing what you're doing. He's just merely saying, we hurt. We hurt. 
Let's look at our third point as we're wrapping up with our time. Our third point, the worshiper requests future help or future good. We've got, so far we've seen the worshiper recalls God's past good. We get excited about that. But man, we feel what the worshiper feels like in that second point. The worshiper recites God's perceived lack of present good. Is God ever not good? He's never not good. You can't really do double negatives like that. It gets confusing, doesn't it? God is always, always good. There's never a time when God isn't good. There are times when we don't feel like God isn't good. There's sometimes when we feel the pain or we feel a received, a perceived lack of present good, but God is always good. And sometimes, friends, that's the only thing that we can, we can back up to. That's the only thing that we can hold on to. And we've got to hold on to that tightly when we don't know what God is doing and it hurts and our hearts are crying out in pain. Sometimes the only thing we have is to step back and say, here's, here's all I know. God is good. Doesn't feel like it right now, but my feelings are fickle. God is good. I know that. Everything he does comes from his good, and so I can hold on to that. And friends, sometimes that's all we have. The only foundation we can stand on is the character of God, and we must stand, and we must stand firmly because our doctrine must dictate to our hearts and minds how to think and feel. And in this last section, he cries out, and here's his plea. He moves towards the ask of this whole psalm, and he says in Psalm 44, Verse 23, arouse yourself, arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake and do not reject us forever. I love this. In his pain, he's saying, Lord, only you can save us, so arouse yourself. And does God ever sleep or slumber? We know that he doesn't. God is not like mankind that he needs to take a cat nap, and how good is that? God doesn't fall asleep and forget things, although sometimes it feels like it. Sometimes it feels like God has completely forgotten my situation. Maybe God took a nap, which he doesn't do. We know that he doesn't do that, right? Think about Psalm uh, 121 verse 3. He will not allow your foot to stumble. He who keeps you will not slumber. God doesn't need a cat nap. Uh, Isaiah 40, 28, do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of heavens and earth, does not become weary or tired and his understanding is unsearchable. I love the psalmist. I don't think this is an area where our psalmist is having bad theology, thinking that God sleeps. He knows God doesn't sleep. He's putting an anthropomorphism on God. Wake up, God is not like us. But in other words, he's just saying, rise. You are the only one that can get us out of this situation. So rise up, he says. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? Awake and don't reject us. He says, why did you hide your face and forget, or why do you hide your face, present tense, and you forget our affliction and our opposition and oppression? For our soul has sunk down into the dust. Our body cleaves to the earth. We are as low as we can get. You can't get lower than your body cleaving to the earth. This is it. Any lower and we're buried. So rise. Last verse, rise up. Rise up and be our help. Redeem us for the sake of your loving kindness. I love this. What faith the worshiper has in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of just being laid out. We've got nothing left but you, so rise. Our worshiper has his theology right. It's not something you can do, it's not something I can do. God, God alone can save us. And friends, we are so blessed to be in the new covenant, New Testament. We're looking back at the old. All they had was a future day. One day, Messiah would come and make things right. Someday, the wrongs would be righted, and someday, he would rise up, and someday, that would happen. And we get the blessing of being able to look back and say, it did, right? And, and although he's asking God to rise up and save their military type situation, I would argue that the greatest thing happened when God rose, when God stood up off his throne, the second person of the Trinity, and, and when he said, it's time, and he stood up and he stepped down and he took on, he took on the form of a slave. 
He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he stepped down and, and he did more than just save Israel from their military situation. He went far beyond. And that's where we can see this and we can understand the pain and we can understand the suffering because we've been there, but we can stand on a more sure ground because we've got Christ. And if Christ came down at the right time and he rose from the throne and he came to redeem and he came because of his loving kindness, how much more can we say than our little difficulty, which feels great, will be taken care of too? If he knew from before the foundations of the earth, Ephesians chapter one, that my name would be written in the book and he sent his son to die for me, the, the worst scenario I could ever be in, and he took me from the kingdom of darkness and transferred me to the kingdom of light, how much more can I trust him for my daily suffering? Friend, we have more than the psalmist had. We have more than the Old Testament worshiper did. We have an advantage that he didn't have. We can look back and say, we've got proof that he loves us. We've got proof that he didn't reject us. We have proof that he rose up off his throne and he redeemed us with his loving kindness. That doesn't make my suffering painless. It doesn't make my suffering easier in the sense of I'm still suffering, but it makes my faith grounded and it makes me be able to walk into that suffering and through that suffering knowing that if he took care of my sins, the, the worst thing that could ever happen to me, then he can take care of my suffering and he can hold me fast as we sang. When your feelings and your faith collide, friend, hold on to the truth of God's word and the truth of God's love for you in Christ. He did rise up. Does that help you when a loved one dies right now? It does. The pain is still there, but knowing that God cared for you so much to die for you, he will walk you through it. He will walk you through it. Do you remember our modern day Job from the beginning of the sermon? when he got on a boat after he received that telegram from his wife saying saved alone, he got on a boat to head towards Europe to go meet up with his wife. And when he was over the Atlantic Ocean, roughly the area or the spot where his four daughters went down, the, the captain of the ship called him up and said, this is the area. Put yourself in Horatio Spafford's shoes in that moment. This is the place where the ocean overcame the ship and the sea billows rolled. This morning we sang a song that he wrote in that moment, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I don't think Horatio is saying it is well with my soul with a big smile on his face, he was suffering he was going through difficulty. He was going through a suffering where all four of his kids died in one moment in the middle of the ocean. And he says, but a peace like a river came to me because sorrows like sea billows were rolling. Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say is well. It is well with my soul. How can someone do that? How can someone say that? It's because the faith that they had conquered their feelings. We still suffer, it still hurts. One day, all the hurting will be made right. One day in heaven, all the suffering will be gone. One day in heaven, we'll understand all things and we'll know why. Right now, we don't need to know why. We need to have faith. Like the worshiper, we need to call out, Lord, rise up, rise up. And then we need to remember that he did rise up. Friends, if you're suffering and you're struggling and it's difficult and you're having a hard time, we would love to talk to you about it. If, if you want to have someone pray for you after the service, we're gonna have men and women over here ready to pray with you, ready to talk about the difficulties and, and ready to point you to Christ and to his word. But, but by means of conclusion here, if you're here today as a believer and you know Christ and you have given your life to Christ and, and you follow hard after him and you pursue him with your life, this text should ground you and prepare you for suffering that will come. Someone said it once, you're either, you've either just come out of a trial or you're going into or you're in a trial, or you're about to go into a trial. That's life. And we need to be grounded. We need to be rooted in God's word. We must let our doctrine dictate to our hearts how to think and feel 
in all scenarios. Otherwise, we'll just be blown about like a boat on the ocean. We must remember who God is. We must remember his character. We must remember that he's good, even in the midst of difficulty. And so we can be like the worshiper saying, I'm, I'm hurting. I'm cleaving. My body is cleaving to the earth, the dust of the earth. I can't get lower without being dead. Thank you for rising up. Help me walk in this. Friends, if you're here today as a non-believer and you don't know Christ and you haven't asked forgiveness for your sins, this psalm is a hard psalm for you. Uh, you don't recognize that God saved you. You don't recognize that he raised up. You haven't asked forgiveness for your sins, so you don't have him walking with you. This psalm says to you, sinner, repent. Find peace in Christ. Find peace from your sins in Christ. Find forgiveness from your sins in Christ. Be adopted into the family of God and have the hope that comes with Christ in your heart. Walk with him. He rose from the throne to die for the sins of those who would repent. So don't leave here through those doors today the same person that came in. Don't let your pride rise up and say, well, I don't wanna talk about it or I don't think today's the day. No, today is the day of salvation. Run over here to this door when we're done. Ask someone to help you understand who Christ is and let today be the best day of your life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful grateful for your word, grateful for truth that we find in your word. Lord, we're grateful for Psalm 44. Lord, we all go through difficult times. We all suffer. We all feel the pain of that. And we're tempted. We're tempted to buy into asking you, why me? We're tempted to say, what have I done to deserve these things? Lord, help us to stand firm in your word. Help us to be like the worshiper who, who remembers the things that you've done who still worships you even through the hard, the hard times and says, I will worship you forever and calls out to you to be his strength. Lord, help us to be like the worshipers of Psalm 44. Help us to stand firm in your word. Lord, I pray for those who are here who are not believers. May your word pierce them to their very soul. Lord, may your word cause them to not, Lord, be at peace until they find you. Lord, I pray that they would desire to be saved from their sins, to be reconciled with you, and to follow you with the rest of their lives. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.